Good morning, Grace Fellowship Church. I wish you all could be here, but hopefully you are well. I'm here at the church with Jeff Scott, recording technician. Thank you, Jeff, for helping us. We also have a very special guest with us. Our friend Tony Williams came to visit, a former attendee of our church, Penn State student. He was just passing through town and stopped in to worship with us, only to discover that we had canceled our services. But he's here in the flesh with us as well. We also have a ton of Panera bread, including the sweets. Sorry you can't have any. Jeff and Tony and I are going to have to take it all ourselves. Well, we are experiencing a situation... I presume none of us have seen in our lifetimes. There is no audio. We will try this again. We apologize. We tested the audio before, but now we don't have it for some reason. No sound. People are commenting no sound. We'll go live? Okay. Okay, let's test this. Can you hear me? We just unplugged the direct line feed and we're trying to use just the phone microphone. Can you hear? Do we have no hearing? Yes. Thank you. Okay, we have some sound now. We're just recording the live sound onto the phone. For some reason, we had a direct feed into the phone that we tested and was working, but sorry, it failed. Welcome, Grace Fellowship Church. Uh, I wish we could do this under different circumstances, but I'm glad that we can still do something. And uh, I'm here with Jeff Scott, who is... uh, managing the recording for me. And we also have a a friend with us, Tony Williams, a former Penn State student and attendee of our church who was passing through town and stopped in just to worship with us only to discover we had canceled our service. So please feel free to make a shout out to Tony there uh, in the the chat for the video. But uh, welcome to, if we have any visitors, any uh, non-Grace Fellowship people joining us. We're glad you could be with us. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of our elders. We are experiencing a situation that I presume none of us have seen in our lifetimes. I believe the last time our nation saw such widespread shutdowns of community events was not even during the terrorist attacks of September 2001, but was back in 1918 during the outbreak of the Spanish flu. And so this is a new thing for most of us. 
This is a time for us to learn the facts, for us to prepare for what is coming, and for us to put to the test our love for God and for our neighbor. From what I've seen online, according to the University of Oxford and the statistics they are collecting, the number of reported cases of COVID-19 in the United States has doubled in the last three days. Now, this disease is not nearly as deadly as Ebola, but it is about 400 times more deadly than the seasonal flu. Those at greatest risk of death from COVID-19, you may have heard, they are the elderly. About 1 in 12 of those who have contracted the disease have died. And also those at great risk are those with pre-existing conditions such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and respiratory disease. As many as 1 in 10 of those who have contracted the disease have died depending on the condition. So we have a number of our members in this church who are at high risk. But even if you are not in a high risk category, please keep in mind that every one of us are at very high risk of contracting the disease. It's incredibly contagious. And all of us have a very high risk of passing it on to others, even without knowing it. You can contract it and not show symptoms for five or six days. And so you might not even know that you have it. And we can then pass it on to others who may have a high risk of dying from it. And so we are in the midst of a true public health crisis. And we ought to thank God for a government that cares enough to understand what is happening and to protect as many people as possible from the danger. I'm grateful that Governor Tom Wolf has not attempted to control churches like ours. He has not presumed to require cancellation of our services But he has pled with us. He has begged all community organizations without any any bias. He's requested all community organizations, such as churches, to consider canceling their regular gatherings. And so our elders have been pleased to comply with this request for the sake of the public health. As a church of Jesus Christ, we have a role to play for the greater good. Now, I imagine that some people might be inclined to think that the media coverage regarding the coronavirus has been way overblown. Others of you may be inclined to think that the world is coming to an end and the demonic locusts with stinging tails have been released from the abyss and we are facing the final apocalypse. Both perspectives are really cut from the same bolt of cloth. They are flip sides of the same currency. And that currency is the perspective that things are spiraling out of control. Whether the situation is spiraling out of control and it's the end, or whether the media is spiraling out of control and people are going crazy, the perspective that things are spiraling out of control could not be farther from the truth. Our perspective must come from the Lord who inspired the scriptures for our wisdom and our hope. 
And the scriptures tell us that no situation we face is ever spiraling out of control. It is not an accident, and it is not simply a freak of nature. This is from the hand of the Lord. Amos 3, verse 6 tells us, or actually asks the question, Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless Yahweh has done it? And the rhetorical answer is no. Nothing happens unless the Lord our God has done it. You probably won't hear the word plague in most media reports, but if we are using biblical language, we ought to make no mistake. What we are facing is a plague from the hand of God. And we don't know the secret mind of God. We don't know exactly why he sent this plague. We don't know whether it's an act of punishment or whether he merely wants us to deepen our fear of him and show us how big he is. We don't know exactly what he's doing, but we can be sure that this is from his hand. And God knows exactly what he is doing with his hand. And there is no better or more gracious hand that we could possibly fall into. When King David sinned against God and God did indeed punish the entire nation of Israel for it, he gave David a choice of punishment. He said, you can choose between plague or famine or military defeat. What was David's response? From 2 Samuel 24, verse 14, David said to the prophet, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of Yahweh, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. And so the Lord sent a plague for a number of days. And so, friends, our hope must be in the God of heaven and earth whose mercy is great. We cling to him for refuge and we plead to him for mercy. In the words of Psalm 31, In you, O Yahweh, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily, be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. So what can we do? What can we do as we live out of a deep-seated trust in our merciful God who has everything well under control? I have a few suggestions. First, Please take care of yourself. Please take care of yourself. For the sake of the public health, please follow the guidelines being given to us by the authorities. In particular, please submit to the guidelines for quarantine so this virus can die out before it does too much damage. Please feel free to meet in small groups of people. But do it if you follow drastic hygienic practices. 
Please don't leave your house if you are showing any symptoms of illness whatsoever so you don't spread it. Please wash your hands whenever you arrive to a new location. And when, as soon as you get back home, wash your hands again. Please avoid, try to avoid touching your face, cough or sneeze into your elbow. Please avoid touching other people. And wipe down and disinfect surfaces that are touched a lot. Not just counters, but also keep in mind doorknobs and light switches. Disinfect these surfaces. Please plan not to eat together with others outside of your household unless you're bringing your own food or you're serving individually wrapped portions. Please understand that if you fail to follow practices like this for the next few weeks, you may be responsible for aiding the spread of this plague. And we need to go out to get groceries. Many of us need to go out to our jobs. But as we do that, please follow some of these hygienic practices. Even if you don't suffer any dire symptoms directly from this disease, you have a high risk of becoming a carrier and a contagion to others, putting many others around you at risk. And so we follow these practices not because we're freaking out and we're afraid and we want to protect ourselves, but we do this out of love for those around us so that with this community-wide quarantine, we can kill off this virus. So please take care of yourself. Second, please pray for our community and for the world. Please pray for our community and pray for the world. And as you pray, please pray not only for healing and for protection, but pray for many people to sober up and to realize how short our lives really are. And please pray for people to realize how frightening it would be to fall into the hands of a God this powerful a consuming fire, and to fall into his hands without any protection from the blood of Christ. Please pray for people to see this and to understand. So please take care of yourself. Please pray. And third, please help those who are in need. Please help those who are in need. Though we must be sure to care for ourselves As I said, this doesn't mean that we're doing it in order to protect ourselves alone. We do it so that we can be in the best position to truly extend help to those in need. You might have an elderly neighbor who is at risk, at high risk, who needs someone to go grocery shopping for them so they don't have to leave their home. You might have someone around you who needs a ride to the ER. You might know someone who has no home, perhaps an international student or an orphan, and you can invite them to become a part of your household for the next few weeks. Because our God is in control, we don't need to fear what may come. He knows the number of hairs on our heads, and he has already determined the days of our death. And so we can prepare for trouble. We can be wise in quarantine and medical care. We do this out of love for those around us, but we don't have to worry. 
We're not hunkering down out of fear or out of self-protection. We shouldn't agonize over the terrible things that could befall us. But we should be desperate in prayer for our families, for our community, and for the mission to which we've been called to grow God's kingdom. That leads us into the Lord's message for us this week in the Gospel of Luke. If you've been with our church, we've been studying through the Gospel of Luke this year. And we come to chapter 10, verse 38 this morning. If you would like to turn there, we're in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. And the title of this sermon is, Lord, Do You Not Care? Let me pray now for us before we dive in. Our Father in heaven, please be with us and draw near. Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit, the spirit of power, the spirit of witness, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Please help us to understand your word. You have promised us that you will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And so we now beg of you to please grant us your spirit, give us insight into your word, calm our hearts, grant us assurance of faith, and help us to take good care of ourselves that we might be able to care for others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, life often feels overwhelming. And while I could talk about the overwhelming nature of sin and suffering, I could talk about persecution and problems, I could talk about sickness and plague and society, all these things are overwhelming, but this morning I would like to focus on just one aspect of an overwhelming existence in an overwhelming world, and that is the mission we have been given to proclaim Christ's kingdom. In the last few weeks in Luke's gospel, we have seen Jesus call all of his disciples to proclaim his kingdom to their neighbors. And just last week with the parable of the Good Samaritan, we learned that your neighbor happens to be anyone you come into contact with who is in need regardless of religious, ethnic, or social boundary lines. And so as you gaze on the staggering need that lies on the people all around you, have you ever wondered if the Lord really cared? Does he really care about all these people? Of course he does. And you probably know that. He cares about all those people and all their needs. But have you ever wondered whether the Lord cares about all the work he's asked you to do? Perhaps you feel unsupported and alone. Perhaps you feel out of your league and beyond your pay grade. Perhaps you feel like you've been improperly trained and equipped. How can I spread this mission? Nobody will train me. Perhaps you feel like there just aren't enough hours in the day or enough laborers in the harvest 
to get this job done? If our neighbor is everybody, how can we possibly do what you've called us to do, Lord? Lord, do you not care? Now, this question will ring out from this week's passage, and the Lord Jesus tackles it head on by coming back to further unpack the instruction he gave to those 72 whom he sent out two by two. Up in verse 2 of chapter 10, the very first instruction was, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You see, Jesus wants you to know that he cares. He really cares. And he cares enough to teach you what to pray and why to pray it. So this is our outline this morning. First, because the Lord cares. Number two, you can pray with impudence. Because the Lord cares, you can pray with impudence. Let's start with point number one. Because the Lord cares. We are following on the heels of the sending of the 72 and then the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Luke now introduces the next section of his book with a brief yet pointed narrative about Jesus' visit with two sisters. Verses 38 through 42 of chapter 10. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, the first thing Luke wants to show us in this week's passage is that the Lord Jesus cares. In particular, he cares about everything he has asked his people to do. And he will not leave them to have to get it done all by themselves. We see this idea come out primarily in Martha's question to Jesus in verse 40. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Now, Luke has a pattern in these middle chapters of Luke. He signals a new section But in this large section between chapters 9 and 19, he's got four subsections. And each time, he signals a new one of those four subsections by reminding us that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, which he does here in verse 38, as they went on their way. And then after that reminder, Luke has some character asking Jesus a really big question. And here, it's Martha's question in verse 40. Do you not care? And that question sets the tone for the rest of the subsection that follows. So Martha's question here is the main issue that will shape the next three chapters up until near the end of chapter 13. Do you not care? 
Now, to best understand the question, we need to pick up on the clues that Luke drops here in the description of his characters. We're told in verse 38 that Martha welcomed Jesus into her house. That's no incidental detail. This is in direct contrast to the Samaritan village back in chapter 9, verse 53, that did not receive Jesus. You remember, James and John wanted to call down fire on them. And this is a case study for the sending of the 72. Earlier in chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, Jesus told them to find a home where they would be welcomed, where they would be received, and they were to stay there eating whatever was set before them. Do you see here in verse 38, Luke is showing us that Martha is doing that exact thing. She is precisely the sort of hostess that Jesus instructed his disciples to look for, to stay with, and to issue a blessing to. She received him into her home. Now, look at how Mary is described in verse 39. We're told that Martha's sister Mary was sitting at the Lord's feet. Now, in the book of Luke, this posture of sitting at Jesus' feet is the posture of a disciple. It's the posture of one who would follow Jesus. In chapter 8, we saw a man from whom a legion of demons had been cast out, and he was sitting at Jesus' feet, begging to become a disciple. We also saw in that chapter a synagogue ruler fall at Jesus' feet, imploring Jesus to heal his daughter who was near death. So Luke describes Mary here, not in the position of a hostess, receiving Jesus for who he is, but that was Martha's position, but he describes Mary in the position of a disciple, learning to advance the kingdom of her master. And this is even confirmed for us with the phrase, she listened to his teaching, because in the Greek, this is exactly the same phrase that Jesus used in chapter 8 to describe the various types of soils on which the seed of his word would follow. Jesus said, these soils are people who, quote, hear the word. Luke uses the exact same Greek phrase here. She heard his word. Now, the ESV translators, they are very helpful. They give us the right meaning of the phrase with respect to this immediate story. She listened to his teaching. But sadly, that translation fails to capture the repetition and the the echo back to the parable of the soils. Here's the good soil. She heard the word and she is preparing to bear fruit. So the idea here is that we have two sisters, both of whom are doing the right thing. But the issue for Martha is simply in verse 40 that she is distracted By the serving. She is missing the good portion of becoming a full fledged disciple, not just the person who receives Jesus and hears what he has to say, but the person who joins with him in his kingdom and becomes a disciple to help grow it. She is allowing what is good and right to distract her from what is best. Her service is causing her, verse 41, to feel anxious. And troubled about many things. You see, she's so focused on the work 
required of serving Jesus that she fails to see what a privilege it is to simply be with Jesus. So in the flow of Luke's thought all the way through chapter 10 into this scene and beyond, what rings out like an alarm bell is Martha's question in verse 40. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? In other words, Martha is saying, Jesus, I am doing the work that you asked me to do. I've received you into my home. I'm setting food before you to assist you in your ministry. Do you not care about all this work you've asked me to do? Do you not care about how little help there is these days to get it done? On the heels of the parable of the Good Samaritan, right before this, Martha's question is the question of the person who wants to receive Jesus, but who believes that Jesus is asking an awful lot. I want to receive you, Lord, but don't you care how hard it is? Don't you realize how much work there is to do? So I get it. I get it from the parable that my neighbor is anyone and everyone who is in need, regardless of ethnic and social boundaries. Don't you care how impossible it is to ever care for every one of those people's needs? There aren't enough hours in a lifetime of following you to meet all those needs. There's not enough time to get this job done, to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God, to heal the sick, and to care for the poor. Lord, don't you care how much you're asking of us? Do you ever struggle with this question, friends? Lord, I would love to sit at your feet and be your disciple and be your student and be your partner in ministry. But how can I do all that you're asking me to do? How can I raise my kids well and reach out to my neighbors? How can I study the Bible and feed the hungry? How can I pursue my studies and proclaim your kingdom? How can I care for all the people around me with a plague spreading when it's so scary and I'm not even sure I can care for myself? How can I proclaim your kingdom when I have not been adequately trained or equipped? I don't feel ready. I don't have enough time. There are too many people who need our help. The need will never go away. It will never even decrease. Brothers and sisters, if you have ever felt overwhelmed by what the Lord Jesus is asking of you, you need to know that, yes, he cares. Please hear his word. Listen to his teaching. He says that being his disciple is the good portion which will not be taken away from you. Now, how do we know that he cares? He says, I care. I'm providing. I'm helping. But how do we know he cares? And we can know by looking at what comes next. Moving into chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. It might seem as though Luke is changing the subject, but remember again, when he sent out the 72 on mission, 
What was the very first instruction he gave them? Chapter 10, verse 2. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You see, the very first thing he commanded them to do was to pray. And particularly to pray in light of the tremendous need. So now that we've been faced with Martha's anxiety over all the work there is to do, and we've come to grips with our own anxiety and our discomfort over all the work there is to do, Luke knows that we need to deepen our understanding of that first instruction. We need to be reminded of the way forward when there is so much to be done. First and foremost, we must pray for laborers. Luke will show us here three subpoints: who prays, what to pray, and why to pray. So our second point is you can pray with impudence. And we'll have three subpoints. Let me read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, "Lord, teach us to pray." As John taught his disciples, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. First, as we cover this topic of prayer, you can pray with impudence. First, take note of who prays. Who prays? Look at verse 1. It's not a meaningless detail that Jesus was praying in a certain place. Jesus was praying in a certain place. This statement follows a pattern that Luke has been setting up all throughout his book so far. The theme has been very direct, and yet it hasn't been the main point of what he's been saying all along. So it's been subtle enough that you might not have noticed it. Let me show you. In chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, we were told that when all the people were baptized by John the Baptist, and when Jesus also had been baptized... And was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Jumping ahead to chapter 5, verse 16, we were told that Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Chapter 6, verse 12, in these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Jumping to chapter 9, verse 18. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they said, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. 
You see, Peter's declaration of Jesus' identity came in the context of Jesus praying for that to happen. And then in chapter 9, verse 28, we were told that about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. So Luke highlights the prayer life of Jesus in a unique way. In the other Gospels, even when they tell these same stories, the other Gospels typically don't mention the fact that Jesus was praying. But in Luke, at every key moment in Jesus' ministry, right before some new phase of ministry is launched or some new truth will be proclaimed, we find Jesus praying to God. His greatest acts were accompanied at every turn by frequent, fervent, and committed prayer. So also now, once again, in chapter 11, verse 1, he is praying. And it is his own practice of prayer that now provokes the disciples to ask for help with their prayer lives. Jesus told them in verse 2 of chapter 10 to pray for more laborers in this harvest, but they now realize they don't even know how to do that. But that's okay, because Jesus has been praying for this all along. Jesus doesn't ask them to do anything he hasn't already done himself. And he cares enough about all that he's asking them to do that he stops and takes time to teach them now how to pray for themselves. So who prays? First and foremost, you need to know it's not even you and me. It's Jesus. He's always praying. Such mercy and grace, that's how much he cares. But second, let's move on to what to pray. What to pray. In response to his disciples' question in the rest of verses 1 through 4, Jesus offers a model for prayer. And his model begins by aligning yourself with the Lord's two overarching desires. You can see it right there. For his name to be hallowed, that is to be most honored of all names, and second, for his kingdom to come as he promised. So we start by aligning ourselves with his desires for his name to be the most honored and for his kingdom to come just as he promised. Then it moves on to two basic requests for sustenance, physical and spiritual. First, there's physical help. Lord, give us what we need each day, just like you gave manna in the wilderness to our ancestors. That's the daily bread. And then there's the physical help, and then it moves on to a request for spiritual help. Please forgive us our sins because we funnel that forgiveness right out to others, and we forgive others. So we've got two requests for sustenance, physical sustenance and spiritual help. And then the prayer concludes with a wish for the future. Lord, lead us not into temptation. In other words, Please don't give us too much. Don't let us get distracted like Martha, given to trouble and anxiety 
over all there is to do. This prayer is a simple prayer, very closely related to the prayer for more laborers for the harvest. Because with more laborers, God's name will be magnified above all others. And with more laborers, God's kingdom comes. And in order to continue the mission, our greatest physical need, our daily bread, so to speak, is more laborers. And more laborers are the mechanism for promoting the message of forgiveness to the world. And finally, more laborers will help to ease our anxiety and our pain from all the work there is to do, thereby reducing our temptation to believe that God doesn't care. It's a simple and a straightforward prayer. It can be helpful to pray it word for word from time to time. But it should also simply shape the way we craft our own prayers. These are the key ideas that ought to ooze out of us when we pour out our hearts to the Lord, when we cast our cares on him. And in the next paragraph, Jesus explains why we ought to pray this way. He just told us what to pray. Now he tells us why we ought to make these sorts of petitions to the Lord our God. Let's read verses 5 through 13. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Pardon me. Here in this paragraph, Jesus gives us two main reasons why we should pray his model prayer. The first reason is we pray this way because the job is too much for us. We pray this way because the job is too much for us. In verses 5 through 8, Jesus tells a parable about a friend who needs help at midnight. He needs to entertain a visitor, but he is out of bread. Is this ringing any bells? This should sound a lot like Martha's question in the scene we opened with at the end of chapter 10. She is entertaining an important guest, but she doesn't feel up to the task herself. She needs help. Tell my sister to help me. So here's a guy going to his neighbor, please help me. 
I need to entertain. And Jesus says that the host can go to his friend and ask for help. The friend is not likely to help in the middle of the night purely out of joy from the friendship. I can relate to this. He says he won't help him just because he's his friend. I can relate. When one of my own children wakes me up in the middle of the night, call me a terrible father. Go ahead, put it in the chat there. But my first reaction is almost always go back to bed and see if the problem just fixes itself. The friend won't help just because of friendship. But the friend will help because of the petitioner's impudence. Verse 8. Impudence. Maybe it's not a word you use every day. It means impertinence, audacity, cheek, temerity, shamelessness, chutzpah. The troubled host simply has the guts to ask and to ask big, even at a very awkward time. And the friend will help him not because he's his friend, but he will help him because he had the guts to ask. This is more likely my response when a child comes to me a second time in the middle of the night. If they have the guts to try it again, I will get up and investigate. So in verses 9 and 10, Jesus applies the parable by encouraging his disciples to simply ask so they might receive, to seek so they might find, and to knock so the door might be opened to them. You see, Jesus is encouraging and rewarding impudent prayers, audacious, shameless, impertinent prayers even, praying with chutzpah and temerity and guts. He wants his disciples to ask God and to ask big and to ask often, especially to ask for more help with the job they've been given. So the first reason to pray the Lord's Prayer is because the job we've been given is simply too big for us and we need to ask boldly for more help. This takes the focus off of ourselves and our anxiety and it puts the focus on His name and His glory. His glory is not only in assigning the responsibility to advance His kingdom, but also He takes glory in giving us everything we need to follow through on that responsibility to grow his kingdom. So the first reason to pray is because the job is simply too big for us. And the second reason Jesus gives us to pray his model prayer is because of who God is. Why do we pray this way? Because of who God is. In verses 11 Through the beginning of 13, he says, you know how to be fathers to your children. You know how fathers love to give good gifts to their children. The end of verse 13, he says, so also with your heavenly father. You see, he is actually not a tired and grumpy old man 
a next-door neighbor who is cross with you for waking him up in the middle of the night. No, that is not your God. Your God is an eager and a generous Father who will always, verse 13, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. You see, who is the most important laborer that we need in this harvest of souls to which we've been called? We're told to to ask God for more laborers, but who's the most important laborer? More people to help with the work would be wonderful and is necessary, but they are not sufficient. The laborer we really need is the Holy Spirit of God. We need the Holy Spirit to strengthen our resolve, to assure us of our forgiveness. We need the Holy Spirit to go into the harvest and change people's hearts and prepare them to receive the word of Christ. We need the Holy Spirit to go out and to give the gift of repentance and faith so they will follow and join this kingdom. He is the laborer, the chief laborer that we are begging God for audaciously with impudence. Friends, please understand that there is a God who cares deeply about this world and about the people in it. He cares enough to speak into our experience and to offer forgiveness of sin through membership in his kingdom. He cares enough to have become a man to die and rise, to make all of this possible. And those of you who serve the Lord Jesus Christ, you serve a Messiah, a chosen one, who cares about what he's asking you to do. He doesn't just back the dump truck up on you and unload all of this kingdom responsibility to reach the world and then do all that without helping you. Let me give you three quick applications. How does this apply? Three things. Number one, trust that God cares. Trust that God cares. Number two, pray as though he cares. Pray as though he cares. And number three, pray as though the mission of the kingdom depends on it. Pray as though the mission of the kingdom depends on it. Trust that God cares. Pray as though he cares. And pray as though the mission depends on it. One commentator, William Taylor, said this, The disciple's prayer life will indicate what he or she understands God to be like. You hear that? Look at your prayer life. Because your prayer life will indicate what you understand God to be like. Do you trust that God is a good and a caring Father who loves to give you good gifts? Do you understand how big the job really is that He has given you to do? These two facts will drive you to your knees day by day for help. 
If you are not praying with impudence, if you are not praying with guts, with heart, with desperation, then you are not really laboring for his kingdom the way he wants you to. Either you don't trust that he's a good father, or you don't think the job he's given you is very big, and that he cares. I am personally challenged by this, because... I spend a few minutes each day in prayer. Though I do that, I wouldn't say that I pray as though the mission depends on what I'm praying for. No, I typically live as though the mission depends on my education, my study time, my wisdom, my maturity, my obedience. And I pray alone and I pray with my children I've been convicted from studying this passage because I would like to spend more time in prayer together with my wife, Erin, and with others like her for the sake of the kingdom mission. May we all develop as children of God, eagerly seeking out our God who cares, begging him to provide us with what we need for his glory, especially begging him for more laborers for the harvest of souls, and above all, begging him for the chief laborer, the Holy Spirit, to make this mission go forth. Brothers and sisters, because the Lord cares, you can pray with impudence. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we trust that you care. Lord, you have given us a huge job. Our neighbor, whom you have called us to love, is everyone that we ever come into contact with. And Lord, we could never meet all of those needs, but you can. Help us to trust that you care about this and you care about what you're asking us to do. Please send your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your Spirit that we would have courage to bear witness to your kingdom, that we would have strength and wisdom to care for sick people during this time of this plague that you have sent. And Lord, please send your spirit around us, changing hearts, turning people's hearts to you, opening them up, granting them repentance and faith, preparing them to hear the word of your kingdom as we seek to proclaim it. Please help us to represent you, to love you, to be desperate for you. You are our good Father. You have told us that you will give us good things. And so now we pray, we ask these things boldly. Lord, do what you have promised that you would do. Do not leave us as orphans. Do not leave us alone. Do not let us perish. Please keep your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us.